The dawn of civilization. Primitive. Dangerous. Exciting. The handwriting is on the wall. If the human race is ever going to amount to anything, it needs... The most civilized caveman I have ever seen. Ah. He's come out of his cave. You're listening to the Knuckle Draggers Extravaganza if you're listening through Z Digital or if you're listening to this at a later date on Cave Dweller Music. Hope you're doing well. It's Matt here, and I'm going to be interviewing someone from a band who I have had nothing but good things to say. You may have checked out the review that I did for In the Art of My Caged Existence on 4ZZZ or indeed on Cave Dweller Music. I'm going to be having a chat to John from Woe Warden. Very excited about this one there. How are you going today, mate? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, it's uh, good to have a cool change for once on a, a weekend in Perth. It's been we've had a bit of a hot spell recently, recently. So good to have a bit of a chilled weekend before the tour. Yeah, because that tour is coming up thick and fast. It's coming off the back of in the art of my caged existence, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But you're going to be hitting most of the major metropolitan areas around Australia and doing so with Christ Dismembered. Yeah, yeah. And we're also uh, quite uh, quite stoked as well to be uh, doing it alongside quite a few of our close friends and partners, uh, uh, bands in, in based in Perth, such as Crypt Crawler and Drift. We've uh, been friends with them for a very, very long time, and uh, that's uh, just going to make it even better, as well as with Christ Dismembered. We've known them for quite some time as well, so... It's uh, it's meant to be a tour of misery, but it's also going to be a, a tour of uh, lots of fun times behind the scenes. It's an interesting dichotomy you've got going there. Everyone that is playing on that lineup uh, do live in the world of extreme music. But like you said, there's bands that been, you've known for quite some time. There's some that you're rather excited to tour with as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we've seen them all firsthand on many occasions and we've... Uh, we're, we've collaborated uh, even creatively on, in, in some ex, uh, circumstances, for example, with uh, Crypt Crawler. Um, they were um, quite involved. Uh, Marco is the front man in the, um, the layout of the uh, artwork for the in, my, uh, in the Art of My Cage Existence record, for example. And uh, behind the scenes, I know um, our guitarist is doing a few little um, bits and bobs that uh, may be in the works as well. So the there is a bit of a, a pre-existing relationship there with one of the guys laying out the art. Fantastic artwork, by the way. Yeah, th- thanks very much. Uh, Adam Burke is world-class and we we're very, very fortunate that we were able to commission him to do the artwork for this record. Uh, he's definitely in hot demand across the whole uh, metal scene, you know, from international to lucky local acts such as ourselves, so... I even have the original paintwork in my my room as we speak, which uh, I haven't got around to hanging up on the wall. But uh, yeah, it will definitely be straight in the pool room when it, when it's uh, when it's ready. I hate that feeling though. You got a print, you're very excited about it, but then you have to go through the rigmarole of, oh, okay, do I go through to a professional framing place and do it, or do I go to Office Works and try and chance my arm in one of the frames there? <laughs> yeah, certainly. It's, it's going to look good when it's up there, though. Um, just looking at the Brisbane show, because obviously that's where we are based out of, are you particularly excited to play with a band that ended up in your Picks of 2022 playlist, that being Alters? Oh, I'm, I'm impressed you've done your research and you've looked at my uh, personal top 20. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
I've uh, been raving about altars to my friends for months and months and months before, um, I guess, uh, uh, you know, it really got traction with uh, them doing the shows and this, I think they did a recent uh, support uh, of uh, International Map. I can't remember who it was um, earlier this year. So to be playing alongside them, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, going to be uh, nice to meet them in person and uh, I'll try and not be too much of the fanboy. <laughs> Is that a strange thing for you being able to play against some, uh, play alongside rather someone that you've been looking up to? Because you're both sharing the same stage. You're both there to bring that level of misery, but then you meet them behind the scenes and you go, I really liked your album, man. Um, I think uh, this time around it won't be. Um, I don't know if, you know, without going on too much of a tangent, I don't know if you've ever read the book called by Robert Cormier called After the First Death. I have uh, there's a very, very famous quote that the title of the book is after at the end of saying after the first death, there is no other. And it really feels like that when you actually do play around artists that you've admired, that once you've done it once, um, you you know, you kind of get over the, the uh, I guess, the, the fanboyism to a certain degree and it just becomes, you know, part of, you know, playing in music and, you uh, having that level of mutual respect between other different groups and artists as you admire. For example, um, there's a guy in based in Perth, Louis Rando, who I remember when I first got into metal and when I was 18, 19 and 20, was playing in a, a plethora of bands coming up in Perth and was drumming for... I was about to say, was he a drummer? Because that's normally the the go-to thing. If anyone's yeah. playing in more than one band, yeah, yeah. they're a drummer. Exactly. And he was like uh, drumming in um, Pathogen, which was a very, very big band, uh, came through, you know, in the 90s and noughts in, in WA. Uh, so he was, yeah, drumming in that. And now, you know, we've, he's constantly got a raft of side projects that he's working on. And, you know, now we're playing on multiple shows with him alongside us and, you know, just having a chat one-on-one. So it's, it just comes with the territory, I guess, with, uh, you know, it being such a tight-knit scene that we are in um, Western Australia and even to when nationally, uh, you know, there's artists I've admired such as um, Disho Dish, or um, Sam Dishington from uh, Depart. Um, I haven't, uh, like, sub- technically um, played on a bill alongside him, but I was um, many, many years ago uh, over in Tasmania um watching my friends uh, in Dead Space uh, play and I was doing a guest vocal part on stage and, uh, yeah, Depart was on the bill. Yeah, and I was uh, very, very, very stoked to see them and get to meet him as well. So, yeah, it's just part and parcel, I guess. And that's a really good way of putting it um, because that was a similar thing when I first started interviewing. You get really giddy, really excited for the first couple and even though that excitement's still there, you kind of have a level of, no, this is what I'm doing and these guys are doing a similar thing as me. You know, they're not on this altar. They're not, pardon the pun, of course, they're not on this pedestal. They're not on this altar. You know, this is what I'm doing. This is my job. Exactly. Or for most of us, uh, just a very extensive hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk through the dates that you've got lined up. So you're going to be hitting uh, Adelaide, Melbourne, Brisbane, uh, Sydney as well. You, by the sounds of it, have played a couple of these places before. Is there anywhere on this tour that you were particularly keen to head to? 
That is a very good question, and I haven't uh, really thought about it to that degree. I guess um, I'd have to, I, without going on about too much, I definitely think the um, the uh, Australia Day show in Brisbane is the one I'm looking forward to the most because of how solid the lineup is, the fact that we're playing alongside Alters, Misdemeanor. I have never heard of that venue before. I've never played at it. It's apparently um, the old Rosies, if you've ever heard Brisbane metal bands talk about it. Never heard of that, to be honest. Uh, my, my Coming from uh, WA and the Hermit Kingdom uh, that we have been for quite some time <laughs> during COVID, my, my knowledge of Brisbane metal and the venues really is Fortitude Valley and that's it. So yeah. for... Um, yeah, this is that one for me in particular is one I'm really looking forward to, especially for that as well because it's on a public holiday. Um, so we're ho- I'm hoping, you know, with that in mind, that there will probably be a few more people that, um, you know, have got time off or, you know, going to be calling in on a, a sickie the following day, as usually the case on that public holiday. And uh, that's normally how it works, hey? Exactly. So. Well, and it's a massive show as well. Like it starts at two o'clock, and there's just there's so many bands on there. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad the rest of my band doesn't drink that much because I think they're going to have to keep me on the short lease to make sure <laughs> I'm sober enough before I get on get on stage and wail into my microphone. Um, and then you'll be hitting the Tote, the Vanguard, Amplifier, Prince of Wales, um, and you're back at the Amplifier early on in February with the guys you'll be sharing the stage with um, a couple of times throughout the tour, Malignant Aura. Yes, that's right. Um, we, we, uh, so our um, guitarist, uh, Dan Jackson, he's been in very, very close contact with Malignant Aura. And um, I think, you know, that's come, that relationship has been established a lot uh, due to, you know, the common label that we're on uh, through mm-hmm. Bitter Lost Records. That's based outside of Perth, just about 15 minutes from my house, as we were discussing offline uh, earlier. And, um, yeah, through that, uh, we've, you know, been working uh, together to try and, you know, establish some shows interstate and help each other out as we do as label mates. So, it's uh, yeah, it's been a good synergy so far. And uh, hopefully it'll, it'll show when, I, when the shows come around. Let's double down on the label mates aspect and have a chat about Bitter Loss Records. You mentioned um, there that it's based about 15 minutes outside of where you live. I was mentioning this to you off air, but three of my favorite records of 2022 came on or came via Bitter Loss Records. Um, how have you found the relationship so far? You were already an established band, as we're going to talk about a bit later on, but going from cancer into woe warden and then onto bitter lost records how have you found the relationship with them so far i found it's been a breath of fresh air to be honest um when we first um started the band way way back i think it was in 2016 we originally were going to release our self-titled oh sorry not the self-titled but our titled ep uh terminal um as an independent release, but um, through the traction we got from the uh, original video that we released, Distant Dreams, um, we actually got approached by a label at the time called Throats Productions, uh, based in North America. And um, I've got got to try and be careful what I say here, but I felt like after a while there was, um, yeah, a lot of uh, 
expect well there was a contract that was signed and there was a lot of expectations that uh, we we hope would come out of the rec- record that weren't delivered upon and uh, yeah we just felt through the wheelings and dealings associated with that with a small label uh, overseas and not being able to communicate and things getting lost in the pack in the post etc cetera, etc cetera. it just um, became too complicated and we um decided collectively that we wanted to go back to being a independent label or, or independent artist, uh, which is what we um, did primarily on our last release under the cancer moniker, Opioid. But following that, um, and I guess this is probably a bit of a segue into um, the the name change is um, at the time, uh, our drummer, Chris Cabal, who's the front man of Dead Space, who I was one of the founders and original creators for the Cancer Moniker, uh, decided that uh, he wanted to part ways and concentrate on taking a break from music and Dead Space and his other creative entities. And uh, since then, he's moved to Belgium and re-established uh, Dead Space Uh and we've uh, continued this uh, enterprise separately, but really the creators uh, from Day Dot were Chris Cabauer as the drummer, myself as vocalist, and Dan Jackson on guitars. And given that he had left, uh, as we were in the process of writing Opioid, um, Dan and I felt that it was best that for that final release we continue under cancer, but for following that any creative material given it was primarily uh, well 90 percent of it artistically is um, written by him and ourself but that with the other band members giving their little spin on things we felt like the creative dynamic and the way things are written in the band had changed drastically and the way it was operated and therefore the name change felt appropriate at the time at the time to kind of like well kind of like right off that chapter, not so much right off that chapter, but recognise that as a chapter in our history and that, that this is our new nut path going forward to give us like a real clear, um, I guess, dissociation between Woe Warden and what was, um, uh, yeah, cancer and its uh, ties with uh, Dead Space, hence, hence that name change. And it seems like it almost... We're well, still continuing on the the lineage and the legacy thing as it is both you and Dan as central pillars of that project. Um, and it just seems as though that, yeah, once once one of the members went by the wayside, continued on their own thing, you guys had such a, a synergy and such a writing connection that it's like, let's continue on with this, but we're clearly going to be going in a different direction. Yeah, that's right. And and through that, to kind of go back and answer your uh, previous question uh, properly, that kind of led us to the point where Dan and I decided, no, well, we've done the independent release path. Let's, if we want to really take this to the next level, which we were very keen to do so, we, we felt like we needed to, you know, find, find a label that was willing to uh, understand our vision and take us on creatively, but also be one that, um yeah we weren't we're basically going to encounter the same challenges we did previously through uh that north american label um uh, with the logistics and um you know promises that were promises that weren't necessarily met to our expectations and through 
than reaching out to Better Loss uh, Records, um, given that we also have some friends in Perth that had already previously signed to them with other releases, like such as uh, Crypt Crawler and Flesh Worship. We decided to have a catch-up one day with him uh, at the Cottesloe or the Ocean Beach Hotel, uh, which is right on the beachfront in uh, the western suburbs of Perth. Had a bit of a chat to him, discussed what we were looking for in our vision, and he seemed very, very keen to take us on board and under his wing. And through that, it, you know, the combination of him being so receptive to our messages, the fact that uh, Rob from Bill Lost Records is only 15 minutes from my house. I mean, hell, just, just yesterday, we had some orders from Belgium for some of our merchandise, and he was able to just quickly come pop over to my house and uh, collect some of the T-shirts from the inventory we already had packed to send on to the tour. So it just... It's made everything a lot more fluid and a lot easier to manage from the um, the merchandise and printing standpoint, and allow us to concentrate on the on the uh, music and what we do best. So, yeah, we're very very grateful to have Bitter Lossa, and uh, yeah, we hope to continue that relationship going forward. And the time difference would have been a major factor as well. Obviously, even though. Uh, Rob is 15 minutes by you, but even if he was still based in Australia, you know, there's only what two hours difference between the West Coast and the East Coast in Australia. But going from Perth to the nebulous North America, like you wouldn't trying to organize anything, trying to organize video catch ups just would have been a nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's not just that, it's, uh, you know, if logistically with the merch is one thing you know having catch-ups is another um and also the fact that um the dialogue is very very open we're both uh, receptive to each other's feedback and brainstorming ideas so you know there's there's bits of feedback or and suggestions that we've given to him as to how we could manage and market our music and uh vice versa, based upon his dealings with um, uh, management campaigns and other artists and what's worked well with the printers and vendors and so forth. So it's, yeah, having that um, that's, uh, harmonious relationship has really, really been, as, a, as going back before, using the term a breath of fresh air for us. And we're very, very thankful for what he's been able to do for us. And and also for a lot of us in Perth, uh, let alone, you know, the rest of Australia. It's one thing I do like asking people who, and it's like yourself, we interviewed Freedom of Fear a little while ago, but talk me through a little bit of the Perth heavy scene. Obviously, there's you guys, you mentioned a few other guys from Bitter Loss Records. Bitter Loss themselves uh, are based out of there. And for us strangers on the East Coast, what's the heavy music scene like over there? Um. I think uh, it's really just a small encapsulation of what you see over the eastern states. Uh, the The challenge, I think, for um, us is because we are a smaller encapsulation, is finding, um, I guess, willing venues and right size venues to facilitate our our shows. You know, it's um, through. I remember back in the '90s and the noughts when metal was much much popular in Australia or especially from what I saw in WA, it was not uncommon for you to go see, you know, go to a venue such as the Amplifier Bar in the city, which has, I think, from memory, about a venue capacity of 300, 400 people. And, you know, quite often or not, you would see local metal shows those nights 
if not uh, almost reach full capacity or sell out. Whereas most days, um, if you have a local metal lineup in Perth, um, you know, we're, we're looking at patrons of like 100, 150, you've done very, very well, but like 100 is usually the target. So it's a much, much smaller smaller than what it was, but the the people that go that go to them are, you know, are very, very dedicated. Usually you see the same um the same patrons and they listen to every genre you can possibly think of. It's not like that you have a particular group of people that go and listen to black metal music like us and black metal only or um death metal and death metal only. Um, you, you tend to see that they're all everyone's tends to be pretty tight knit and um, supportive of all of the genres across, um, yeah, across the spectrum. Um, I guess because you know, we let's face it, you know, uh, with when it comes to the music we listen to, as as the years go by, we are a bit of a dying breed when it comes to metal, and where where you know the underground is the people that support us. So we do everything we can to support that ourselves. We, we go to shows locally ourselves and we're friends with a lot of uh, different bands from different genres, whether it be um, whether it be power metal bands such as Silent Nights or alternative metal bands such as Icarus Lives, Death Metal through Cripcore or Anashin, just a few, and also the old school ones, uh, that are, you know, that when they have the uh, big uh, yearly metal, metal shows based in Perth. So... Yeah, that, that that's I guess what it is in a in a nutshell, and I guess as well you've um, and I'm sure this is the same over the eastern states where you, there has been a quite big rise in the amount of uh, number of cover bands that are playing as well across the city. They tend to attract a huge amount of patrons in comparison to the original artists. Um, uh, and yeah, with the international shows, you still get uh, big big turnouts for them as well. But from the, for local shows, it tends to be a much smaller crowd. And it's an interesting thing with those cover bands, and I don't know whether this is what you've seen, but um, I am, what am I, 27. So all the cover bands that I'm seeing popping up across the the social medias are covering, you know, Limp Biscuit, Corn, and things like that. And all I can think is, really, dude? Like, that's that's the cover band you're paying, like, 40, 50 bucks to go see? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um... I know quite a few guys in Perth that play in original bands as well as cover bands, so, you know, more power to them. Uh, I personally don't have a very strong interest to play in cover bands, but, yeah, we do see a lot of that as well, how there's, you know, there's there'll be cover bands where that have done Corn, there's ones with Limp Bizkit, one of the... Um, one of uh, my friends who was a keyboardist in Advent, sorry, uh, he used to be in a cover band, a System of a Down cover band, and uh, I think he's moved on from that. But um, there's a few other guys I'm friends with that uh, have continued that project. Um, yeah, but in terms of, like, you know, the real, like, full-on heavy metal stuff, there is some cover cover metal bands that I have seen, but they, they're not operating on a continuous basis. It'll be like maybe once a year that I'll do like a tribute to Pantera or, or Metallica or something like that. So, On the topic of uh, cover bands, you, if my, uh, if my knowledge is not mistaken, your first black metal project was off the back of your YouTube 
channel where you did black metal covers, uh, Blasphemous Label. Yeah, Blasphemous Label. Um, yeah, that's um, that's uh, never. Uh, I wouldn't say it's something that is not serious. It's just something that I, because they're technically covers, because of the the way YouTube works with um, how it'll flag detect music in a particular video and then claim copyrights on it. Yeah. Nor do I want to infringe copyrights. It's something that I haven't deliberately tried to, and you can see over the years, try and step up the quality of the video editing or animations or all sorts of bells and whistles that you see in most um, YouTube videos these days. That was never really the intention of it. Blasphemous Libel actually started out of me teaching myself how to do um, extreme vocals very, 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 very early on. In fact, I think the first cover I did was um, The Serpentine Offering from Demi Boyger, and that was literally about a month after I just cracked the code of being able to do extreme vocals and realise that my strength is that raspy, shagreth kind of style of vocal. Um, So, yeah, I've always kind of you know, done that off to the side. It's been less of a focus in um, recent years since I've always been yearning more to move towards creative outlets and the catharsis associated with that and performing live. But, um, yeah, um, the covers, they, uh, yeah, taken a back seat, but uh, there's something that's uh, it's, it's opened up a lot of different paths for me. It's like, you know, it was um, before I was uh, doing that, I was, seen in Perth as just any other person in the crowd. But, you know, thankfully through the world of YouTube and Facebook and people seeing those people's uh, videos, people realise, oh, you know, shit, John John can do these vocals. And through that, I got the opportunity to do a studio project over in the U- based in the UK with an atmospheric black metal project called Inquinamentum for a couple of records, which I've parted ways from since. Uh, a couple of collaborations with some other YouTubers on other different songs. And also it, op- it opened up uh, the friendships I made through Dead Space that eventually are now my friends who have who've become on uh, come on the bandwagon, I guess, for Woe Warden. Um, yeah, so it's uh, definitely opened up the avenues and it's uh, something that I'm not ashamed to talk about. And, um, you know, a lot of those those covers I'm still proud of to this day despite the, the quality of my video editing not being exactly my strength. One of the strengths, though, and you mentioned those raspy vocals there, but they are all throughout in the art of my caged existence. And I think that was the one thing outside the atmosphere that you guys are able to create was the one thing that really stuck with me in the first listen. I can't remember the name of the song off the top of my head, but the opener on that record there's something in your vocals that are unsettling, not in the kind of silencer, death pierce me kind of way, but there's actual, what's the word I'm looking for? There's like a a, a desperation in them. Oh, okay, so you're, so you're talking more about the the Banshee style whales, like the, your, your typical DSBM vocals rather, as you said, like with like silencer and life lover. That, yeah. that's, that sort of realm versus, versus um, the typical black metal, um, you know, East Sun from Emperor, Shagrath from Demi Boyger kind of style. So the, and this is a great way, and I'm wanting to actually talk about the album in and of itself, but mm. 
how do you find like how do you get yourself to that stage where you can have those really desperate like there's they almost don't sound human or they're like the best way I can describe is they're very desperate sounding you know yeah yeah um I think uh going back a little bit to the blasphemous libel channel one point I didn't mention is a lot of why I kept doing that is just sheerly through experimentation it kind of gave me a platform to not only because people liked it but people kind of came back and said I like what you do here and you know people are pretty honest with the comments and the view counts which things get traction and one thing I kind of noticed early uh, at one point, and it's kind of how I met Dead Space, is I did a cover of a Ghost Bath song. I think it was called Golden Number. Um, and it was like one of the first times where I really tried to have a go at doing the Banshee and Desperate Whales. And, and part of that's, you know, because I emotionally connected to that song and, and along with a lot of other depressive black metal music at the time. Um, and through that, I got a lot of feedback from that that saying, well, you're, you know, that's that sounds really, really good. And I just over time, as my music, uh, particularly with Cancer and Woe Ward and, and the lyrical content I write is very, very personal to me. And as a lot of them is either to do with um uh pardon the pardon the pun where has dealt with woes or um Thing, events in my life or demons that have affected me and uh, things I'm trying to process that it has a real personal manner to me, the, the lyrics and the the style as a way of being a catharsis uh, for, for myself. And I think that probably along with all of the experimentation I did earlier on and just continuing practising to get stronger and stronger at it has allowed me to get to the point where you hear that anguish uh, so to speak, in that style that I'm performing on the record. That was the other word that really came to mind when I was listening to In The Art is it felt very cathartic. Like as I was listening to it, I felt as though I was experiencing some sort of catharsis for a malaise or, you know, something that was going on in the back of my mind that I wasn't even aware of. Is it a conscious thing when you approach a record to have an idea, a feeling, or even sort of a phrase or sentence that you're trying to hit with it, or is it how the music comes out? Um, I find with most of the music that um, Dan or the riff farming that Dan does and then I kind of help him piece it all together into something cohesive, that he, he really gives me a platform because he's such a great, great writer, in my opinion, that's... I can work with a lot of different ideas and bits of baggage in my mind or um, depressive or um, anxious thoughts in different ways of forms and I, forms, and I just am able to pull from that bank and find something that fits. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's cleansing. It allows me to think through those ways. But at the same time, I don't want to try and limit myself just to writing around um, yeah, um, I guess negative themes or stories, uh, which I deliberately as well try to keep open to interpretation because I want uh, people to make the music their own story, right? Not just mine. Um, but I, yeah, I don't want to limit it just to uh, stories that I've had to deal with. Um, I've written, for example, on in the art of my cage existence, um, 
uh, songs about some of the tribal trials and tribulations that other uh, members of my band were dealing with at the time and they were processing, but kind of like putting myself in my their space and the emotions that they were dealing with. And then there's other examples uh, such as on the opioid record where I, I decided rather than writing about, um, yeah, the, these subject matters uh, or depressive subject matters of myself or my bandmates on that record, I just threw the whole that that formula out all together and did a concept record based upon a um, very very dark piece of uh, 18th century literature that really compelled me. That my now wife uh, got me onto by Tom De Quincey um, called uh, "Confessions of an English Opium Eater," talking about the stories of this very very famous English linguist to an essayist, um, basically going, writing in a very, very poetic manner, uh, the dealings of him being an opium addict in the Victorian era in England and how he, how that affected him through his entire life would dealing with um, his chronic pain, his addiction, and also the really fucked up dreams and hallucinations that it imposed on him through the rest of his life. And now I was actually going to ask about how you came to find out about Thomas De Quincey, but we've just covered it there. It's a very, I'm not going to say a very niche thing to create a concept record of, but it seems like a very well-researched and a very in-depth thing to base it around rather than, like I said, this idea of catharsis, of uh, working through a set of issues. Yeah, um, I, I guess what I liked about that's what really grabbed me about that um, um, book in particular, and also the um, the additional essays he wrote following that called Suspirio de Profundis, or uh, in Latin stands for Size from the Depths, hence why you hear the, um, you see, or the titled, um, the track listing on the records called The Depth. Uh, there's a six-part series of the depths one, two, three, four, five, six, mm-hmm. which is kind of based on quite a few of those um, dreams that he had while under the influence of opium. And it just got me thinking that you know, rather than uh, just writing around um, dealing with depression and anxious thoughts that a lot of us deal with in modern society, uh, especially for myself coming from the background of a you know a pretty living in a pretty privileged country and in a pretty privileged situation, what it would be like to instead process those thoughts and write about the subject matter in, in the context of addiction as, as one theme, but also um, those, those thoughts uh, from the context of living in the Victorian era. How did you, how did it go about though, the translation of your bandmates and what they're going through into your own lyrics? Was it something that you needed to clear with them? Like, were you, did you present them with the lyrics they read through and thought, yeah, that's a, that's a good representation of what I'm feeling? Um, to be honest, as long as it's not really, really direct what is going on in their lives, um, they don't really mind too much um, because most of the, the music I've write, you know, going back to what I said before, is I, I deliberately write to be very, very open to interpretation. So you would pr- probably could throw the track lists of In the Art of My Cage Existence onto a dartboard 
and you would have no idea which one or two, maybe even three songs, I'm not going to tell you how many they are, are based upon the experiences of my some of my friends were going through at the time and nor, nor should it be. I, I'm at the most, the most of the time anyway, when people listen to music, they're listening to the art as a whole. They're not trying to, I guess, process a lyrical content piece individually. And, and even if people do look at, um, find that interesting, 90% of listeners are more conscious about whether it sounds good. And if it is good, Rather, and you know, if they think it is good, they'll maybe then extend to reading the lyric booklet and finding out what's going on through John's uh, fucked up head at the time to try and place something in um, that is a very, very met- metaphorical piece into something that they can interpret and in their own way and process in a way that connects with them and their own lives. So, yeah, um, in short, they they have uh, seen the lyrics. But none of them have any issue with it and they they trust that, you know, I'm going to keep uh, whatever subjects that they're dealing with at their time as, uh, you know, confidential as uh, as they can. So it's, uh, you know, we're not intruding too much on each other's personal lives. And leaving the lyrics open to interpretation as well, gives the listener a little bit more of a personal experience about it, you know, rather than going, I did this, I did that, this is what I'm feeling. If you broaden the scope a little bit, then the listener can see themselves in the lyrics, which creates a bit more of a personal connection for them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the beauty about music and and any form of art form is, you know, you go into a gallery and you see, you know, or, you know, an exhibition where when Van Gogh's exhibit comes to Australia, for example, when you look at all the paintings, in inside a gallery and yeah yeah there's ones that are about the pace sacks yeah there's a self-portrait bandage of here yeah there's starry night but what you see in the painting and how you interpret what that represents or what the artist was thinking of that forward time is your interpretation and it allows you to kind of explore ideas and concepts inside your own conscience that uh i think you know just through living life alone, you probably wouldn't really digest to a certain degree. It's almost a way of meditating over your own own conscience and and thought process in life. And that's the that's the beauty about music is it's in in this in the same vein, whether it be visual art or audio art, um, you can do the same thing. And I want to keep it that way rather than being something that's. 100% direct on what that subject matter is. And the way that you've expressed it there reminds me a lot of something simple like a journaling practice, you know? And often at times the issues that are going on in your head, once you put them down on a piece of paper, once you have them out of that constant cycle, hurricane, cyclone, spiral in your own mind and you see them on a piece of paper and you can reflect on them, that alleviates a lot of the stress that they cause or at least can help lead to that. Absolutely. And um, we, we as Boy Warden, I guess that's uh, kind of why we went down the path of this name, uh, wanted it to be this way, is we we don't want to be a depressive black metal band that goes and tells people to go out and, and you know, encourage self-harm or suicide or that sort of thing just to be edgy. 
we we we're we're totally against that. And you know, we've um I don't want to speak on the behalf of uh, the other members, but I have had uh, encounters in my life where I've I have self harmed. I have had attempted suicide. I have had been dealing with depression all my entire life. But I, we use Woe Warden as a vessel to, I guess, communicate with other people and interact in a medium to say, "Hey, I have these thoughts. Maybe you have the same thoughts. You're not alone." And we want to use it as a way to, I guess, connect and process those emotions in a constructive manner. And uh, who knows, you might even encourage some conversations between people to, you know, talk about these things and process in a way that, yeah, allows people to, I guess, benefit themselves in their own lives and make themselves stronger individuals. And it goes back to something that you said when we first started talking about the upcoming tour that you guys are embarking on. Overall, it is a rather heavy, a rather depressive, a rather morose and melancholy music that everyone in these bands on the upcoming tour are going to be playing. But that's not the message and that's not the backstage atmosphere. You know, this is what you guys are projecting and putting out into the world through your art, but it isn't reflective of, you know, you guys as a whole or Christ dismembered as a whole or altars as a whole. Exactly. And so, um, you know, the way I see it is, and maybe this, maybe this is another best way of putting it, but I see when, when people come to pay to see you as an artist and when people come to watch your shows, or people come to listen to you, their music, they don't know you as an individual. They know the persona that is being portrayed on stage or or the, the art that has been portrayed through a record. And, you know, we're fully aware of that. And with that, that's the beauty of art is it allows you to capture that persona or those ideas onto a page. But that's only, you know, a, a one chapter of numerous chapters within one's life. And... We like to keep it that way. We, you know, we've I've dealt with um, artists or you know uh, that have been alongside on other tours or you know uh, been involved with other members of other bands that I've filled in for, where it's more than just that they try to encapsulate it in every chapter of their life, and I, I think that's I don't. I don't believe in that because it's not reflective of our personalities and I don't think that's one a way to live one's life is to put on a Superman cape or you know, a costume uh, in dis- a disguise uh, through every every part of your life. It's, you know, we, we're individuals and we may, we're multifaceted and having having this as a vehicle to connect with people is fantastic but there's other ways to connect with people as well and the friendships that we establish and the way we will catch up with people after the show and have a chat at the bar if anybody wants to have a beer with me and have talk anything woe warden or art politics poetry I'm I'm more than happy to do that and be thrilled to do it actually so yeah that's that's the way we like to keep it and it, it makes it makes the writing process and uh for us a lot more seamless and it also makes all the preparations and interactions leading up to a tour or releasing a, re- a record a lot more enjoyable and makes 
every member of Woe Warden wants to be a part of the entity rather than feel like they have to be a part of it and they have to make, uh, be uh, a certain persona or like or identity. They can just be themselves. Pulling back from where we are at the moment, do you still operate under the Duke Ellington quote that if it sounds good, it's good when it comes to your music? Absolutely, and I'm, I'm impressed that you've uh, you've heard me quote that on on one or two occasions because I think that is that is the primary key. I think at the end of the end of the day, regardless of how articulate and how if if you think it is pretentious, my lyrics may be or way the way in which uh we present ourselves on stage or whether you um think that you know i need to use uh, a certain string gauge on my guitars or whatever or i need to look in in such a, a fashion ultimately it all boils down to the music that's why we're here to listen to music so uh i don't think there needs to be a secret formula uh, that's tried and uh, proven, I guess, across different forms of music. I think uh, you got to keep it. You got to keep uh, the way in which you write music and perform it. I guess as simple as possible to, and uh, I, I guess, make the process as seamless as possible to generate a good output. If you try and, uh, I guess overcomplicate things that can lead to things being overwrought you know as they say too many cooks spoil the broth so i think that's that that message is definitely reflected in our music and we'll continue to operate in that way the one band for me at the very least that always encapsulates this and i was listening to an interview they did um and I know a lot of people aren't a big fan of the chats because they think they're incredibly lowbrow and bogan but Eamon from the chat said, punk is the hardest, the easiest music to play, but the hardest to convey. And I think with you going off that Duke Ellington quote of, if it sounds good, it is good. There is some undeniable source or some extra little spice that goes on top. It doesn't matter what genre it is. It doesn't matter sort of when it comes from, but if it sounds good, then it is good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can be the most technical guitarist in history in a tech death band and, you know, with eight strings playing all sorts of flashy solos, but if it's there's no emotional connection to the music, in my opinion, or if there's nothing there that that really engages with you or the listen, listener, then I don't see that as good music. I'm not, and that's not discrediting tech death or technical music at all, like like most most uh, metal mu- uh, listeners, I've always been a fan of sec- Necrophagus in terms of Australian artists. I love uh, Perth-based local Xenobiotic, and my favourite album last year uh, was a Swedish prog metal slash uh, prog death metal album called by a band called An Abstract Illusion, and they're extremely te- technical. But what drives me there to love their music is Going back to that phrase, it sounds good. It is good. It's engaging. It's full of emotion. It, it makes me feel something, and that's what is the makes music great. Um, and going back to what you said with punk, for example, is there's plenty of examples of bands that are simply three chord thrashes. I mean, didn't Status Quo back in the '70s, you know, joke for ages that rocking all over the world and their songs were 
all just basically rehashed versions of three or four chords. ACDC have made a made an entire career off it. With mind you, there's a few, few pretty intricate licks uh, and spins that they put on that with the rhythm and uh, lead guitars uh, through the Young Brothers, but. Uh, it's, it's the same, it's, it all boils down to the same concept that, it, you know, ultimately a paid listener or person buying a record, regardless of how affluent or so or how um, competent they are behind an instrument or whether they don't even know how to operate a, operate a triangle in an orchestra, they're going to judge music about whether it sounds good to their ears at the end and- of the day. Another band that I always go back to, and I'm glad that you brought up ACDC because in my mind, they are the ACDC of heavy metal, but Amon and Marth have been releasing the same record for how long now? And no matter what, like, no matter if it's the first or however many they're up to now, you know exactly what you're going to get with it. And I think the same way, the same way with Cannibal Corpse, for example. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, you know what Cannibal Corpse are going to sound like, and it's going to sound good. Mm. Um, but that's pretty much everything that I had lined up in terms of retrospective questions. We mentioned that you've got the tour coming up, which starts, this will be going out. Just let me double check the dates here. This one here will be going out on Tuesday the 10th. So this coming Saturday, um, as this one comes out, will be when we will be, the tour will be kicking off. Um, uh, yeah, actually, I think it's Friday. Friday the 13th is our first show in Adelaide. Ah, well, there we go. Friday the 13th. Nice and spooky. Um, mm. So we've got that coming out. What is the plan for 2023 ahead? Um, at this stage, um, we're kind of, uh, without using too many uh, footy cliches, so we're really just taking it one day at a time, or in this case, one month at a time. We've got some... Um, you know, plenty of shows packed uh, up to the rafters for us over the next couple of months. As you mentioned, we've we've got this, uh, we've got the Morbid Misery tour off the back of uh, our album release from last year in the Art of My Cage Existence. So we've got shows Friday the 13th in April, um, Saturday the 14th in Melbourne, Thursday 26th in Brisbane, uh, was it Saturday the 28th in Sydney? Then we come back to Perth and play Friday the 3rd, put back in our hometown Perth, Saturday 4th in, in Bunbury. Then we got a few more shows later on in based in Perth. Uh, I think we've got one in mid, uh, I think in March with Malignant Aura. I think um, we've also got um, our monthly uh, metal special we have in Perth for pornography. I think that's in late Feb as well. And there's an unannounced show that we'll also be playing based in Perth. Uh, sometime in mid-April. So for the first like third of 2023, we're pretty busy just concentrating on playing shows. And um, I think after that, depending on if we get any other show opportunities, we'll just concentrate on that at this stage. Um, uh, From a personal standpoint, a lot of us have had a pretty hectic 2022 and I know um, a couple of our band members are going to are going to have a very very hectic first half of the year while trying to juggle um, the, these shows. So I won't be surprised. Maybe towards Q three, um, we might take a little bit of a mini break, and then depending on uh, 
how Dan and I feel at the time. We'll probably start gearing up then to maybe potentially start writing the next record or at least, um, you know, get material, start bouncing ideas around the works to put something together. Uh, we shouldn't, uh, most of it will be around if we do that, around the actual, I guess, um, meshing of ideas into something that's cohesive because as I kind of alluded to earlier in the interview, um, Dan is an absolutely amazing riff lord to say the least. And he's always got ideas that he's tracked and placed down into his Reaper archives on his computer. And it's just piecing together which bits sound good, going back to the Duke Ellington quote, and which bits we want to scrap or leave to another day where we think it might work with something a bit better so that's probably the forward plan of this stage it's a, it's a little bit scratchy uh going into the second half of this uh this year at this point one thing i did want to touch on there and this will probably be the last thing that we cover but you said there's a monthly metal night in perth that's a pretty cool that's a pretty cool idea yeah, yeah. So that's uh, run by a guy called um, Dicey Dyson. Um, so he's the um, behind the scenes. He's also uh, works for Soundworks Touring as one of the um, managers for that that group. Uh, but yeah, that's Hornography has been going on now in Perth, I think, for just over two years from memory. We've been pretty keen to be a part be on that roster for quite some time that's uh the times we've reached out to dicey he's um i guess because we're such you know depressive black metal such a uh you know out there genre compared to the raft of different styles of music there are based in perth like let alone the rest of australia um there hasn't really been a i guess a lineup that we uh he and we felt would be a right fit uh, for us to play on a bill at Hornography. Um, but, yeah, that's we're going to be playing that show, I think, in late Feb. It's the first one for this uh, year. But, he's uh, yeah, he's been operating that alongside um, uh, the guys from Claim the Throne, uh, who's, uh, which is essentially a pirate metal slash uh, pirate metal kind of uh, band that's been been around for a long, long time in, uh, in, in Perth and, uh, you know, played nationally quite a few times. Yeah, that, those, uh, two, those two entities have been running that and uh, it's, been, it's changed over a few different venues, but uh, it's usually been in a quite a humble dive bar that we do on, a, on the last Saturday of uh, every month where they just put together local shows, uh, local artists, uh, whether established or up and rising. And, yeah, it's usually a pretty tight-knit crowd that goes and supports those shows. So... Yeah, we're looking forward to that one. So if you're in, uh, if you're listening to this this in Perth, keep an eye out for that one. There, we will be putting the tour dates on the Cave Dweller Music and indeed the Knuckle Drake's Extravaganza Facebook page. Before we send you off, if people wanted to check out Woe Warden's staff, get in contact with you guys. How they go about doing so? So if you the easiest way to contact us if you're interested in uh, shows or bookings is either through our Facebook uh, uh, fan page. So uh, that's a pretty easy one to search. Otherwise, contact us through our email, waywarden at gmail.com. If you're wanting to listen to any of our music, we're, we're obviously on Spotify, like every other artist is these days for uh, for digital purchases, go to our Bandcamp, wowarden.bandcamp.com. 
And for physical uh, physicals and merchandise, that's all run through our um, record label, Bitter Lost Records, which you can go to their, their Bandcamp as well at bitterlostrecords.bandcamp.com, I believe is, is the title. But they're also um, very, very easy to access also through um, Facebook. Rob's very, very active in, in managing his page and, and is uh, yeah, constantly constantly interacting with uh, customers as well. So that's how you can reach out to us for shows, uh, digital streaming, and also for uh, physical purchases and merchandise. Well, thank you very much for um, having a chat to us and we'll be seeing you down at Misdemeanor, the old Rosie's venue in Brisbane when you guys make your way through. Can't wait. Let's have a beer and have a good chat, mate.